0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.
1: After this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five rooted columnnades take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and took up his bed and walked. Now now the day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, And greater works than the, these will, be sh- will he show to him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives him life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own as I hear. I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me.
0: All right. Thank you, Krista. It's a big passage. So there is a magazine uh, by the Naval Institute called the U.S. Naval Institute Proceedings. I'm sure you all read it weekly. But there's a story there about a captain named Frank Koch who tells the following story. He says, I was serving on the lead battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge keeping an eye on all activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing reported light bearing on the starboard bow. It is steady and moving astern. Is it steady or moving astern? The captain called out. Uh, The the lookout replied, Steady, captain, which meant we were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. The captain then called to the signalman Signal the ship. We are on a collision course. We advise you to change course 20 degrees. Back came the signal, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, I'm a captain, you change your course 20 degrees. I am a seaman, second class, you had better change your course 20 degrees, was the reply. By that time, the captain was furious. He spat out, I am a battleship, change course 20 degrees. Back came the flashing light, I am a lighthouse, change course. He says we well, changed course <laughs> at that moment. So we're entering into a portion of John's Gospel uh, in chapters five through twelve, where there's going to be a direct conflict of authority. That was really what the battleship and the lighthouse, there was a face-off on who had authority, who was going to yield to the other one, who was going to yield to the authority of the other. And that's essentially what we have in John's Gospel from chapter 5 to chapter 12. Is we have this conflict of the Jewish authorities with Jesus. The religious establishment coming into conflict with Jesus. And it's really about authority. So the title of our message today is The Authority of Jesus. And uh, this, is, this is a message that, this is a title that we're going to see quite a bit over the next few chapters. Uh, is the, this conflict of who has authority. Who has the authority of God. The religious establishment or Jesus this, uh, this rabbi, this no-name rabbi from Galilee. Um, uh, in our Gospel of John, John is one of Jesus' closest friends. In fact, he's called the, the disciple that Jesus loved. So John is writing this gospel, this eyewitness account of Jesus, in order to convince us that he is who he claims to be. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. And he is the dividing point for our eternity. To, to reject him, Is to come under the wrath of God or to remain under the wrath of God or to receive him as the son of God is to have your sins forgiven and come into blessing of God. He is the dividing point of all eternity. He's the dividing point for every human being. He is uh, the authoritative uh, dividing point. He is the way back to God. So in John chapter one, we saw that there was an intro to the book. John lays out that he has an agenda in this book. In telling Jesus' story, in giving this, uh, this eyewitness account of Jesus, he has an agenda. In that he wants to persuade you that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And then in John chapter 2 through chapter 4, we see Jesus beginning to do ma- amazing things. And there is a draw to him. There are crowds being drawn to him, and there are individuals that are interacting with him. And we have this intrigue about Jesus. He's got a bit of a fan base, a bit of a following, but there's both true and false following of him. There's both a genuine desire to know and follow Jesus, and then there's also some just getting caught up in the the show. And so for the most part, to this point in the book... Um, Jesus has been just positively regarded But now in chapter 5 We're going to see that corner turn And Jesus is going to become a lot less popular It's going to be a mix It's going to be a mix of people following him But then also people um, Deciding to not follow him And then also people actually opposing him And this is really where that begins Is this opposition to Jesus Because he's not just a cool magician He claims to be God And that's what gets him in trouble with the religious establishment is he claims the authority of God. The religious establishment claims the authority of God. And there's this showdown, which will yield. So um, if you would look in your... uh, I've got basically a two-part outline today. So in verses 1 through 18, we will see this morning that Jesus demonstrates his divine authority in healing this lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Then he is accused... By the religious leaders of um, of a couple of things. And um, his, his, his divinity is challenged. And so then he gives a long um, um, defense in 19 through 30 of his authority. And actually it continues on to, to verse 47. But we'll pick that up next week. So um, So that's the two-part outline today as we go through the text. Jesus demonstrates his divine authority. And then Jesus defends his divine authority. Okay, so let's look at Jesus's divine authority first of all in verses 1 through 7 over superstition over superstition Verse 1 after these after this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem So Jesus is bouncing between the north his hometown area and the city capital Jerusalem So we'll just see that kind of bouncing back and forth. He is he's uh, he covers a lot of ground So now he's back in Jerusalem um, at the same time, there's a big crowd there because people would come for the feasts. Um, and now there, well, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has, a five, has five roofed colonnades. So colonnades are like porches. So it's got kind of these over porches, and uh, it's got five of these porches. And this pool is fascinating because it's actually kind of two pools. So there's a, there's a porch on each side, but then there's a porch kind of dividing these pools. And apparently according to what I found It's about the size of a football field And this became a place Where like public bathhouses And that kind of stuff um, This was a gathering place Particularly of those who were sick Verse 3 In these lay a multitude of invalids Blind, lame, and paralyzed Now how many of you have verse 4 in your Bibles? You actually have it you have it? A lot of you don't, right? So this is interesting In that verse 4, I don't think, was originally part of what John wrote. So the way the Bible is put together is that John wrote the initial manuscript, and then it was copied by faithful people. We don't have the original documents, but we've got copies. And in fact, when you take the whole New Testament and all the fragments, we've got 21,000 different fragments and copies of the New Testament. It's one of the most historically verified documents in human history. By far the most is the New Testament. But we don't have any of the originals, and what we have is that we have different manuscripts, different copies from different eras, one we find like in the, in the 1400s and one we find like in the 1800s, and, um, and uh, sometimes there's a discrepancy. Now what's cool is that your Bible shows you that. There's only a handful of discrepancies in the whole New Testament, and your translators are honest. They don't hide it from you. They go, we have a little bit. It's 99.9% of your New Testament agrees, but there's a couple spots where some manuscripts have an extra sentence or two, and others don't. We're going to run into that later in the book of John 2. So here's what it is. Um, some of you may you maybe have it in your footnote at the bottom. Some of you may have included it in the text because there are some manuscripts that disagree here. Um, and here's what it says there. Uh, um, for, I'm sorry, uh, holy, okay, waiting. So let's go back to the beginning of verse 3. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was healed of whatever disease he had. So that's the disputable part there, okay? So this shouldn't undermine your confidence in the Bible at all, because, because it, there's, there's, there is times when something's copied. You've done this before, I'm sure, when you're copying something and you write something and you repeat a sentence or you add something. What I think happened here was a little bit down the line, 100, 200 years later or whatever, some scribe was making commentary. Why is it that these guys are, are around to the pool? And he just writes in the margin, this is what it is. And then somebody copied that and included that commentary. And then that ended its way. And so now there's manuscripts that say different things. Okay. So what we need to know is that this section is absent from the earliest manuscripts. So the earliest manuscripts you go to don't have this verse. That's why I don't think it is part of what John originally wrote. Later Greek manuscripts mark it off as passages that are spurious. So we actually have documents that go, hey, this really wasn't in the original. Some scribe who was maybe teaching, maybe preaching a sermon, wrote this in his notes, and then it got got included in the copy. It also contains seven words that John never uses anywhere else. We have a lot of John's writings. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation are all written by the same guy. And this sentence, this little area here, includes words that John never uses. It's just not part of his normal vocabulary. That's another reason why I don't think it was part of the original. And then manuscripts include it in different forms. So there's, it's, even those that have this are not consistent in that. So, okay? so your Bible is incredibly reliable. And whenever there's an issue, your translators are not covering it up. They're showing, hey, we do have within our 21,000 fragments, we have a couple. We have a handful that disagree right here. And we're just going to tell you that. Okay. So God has preserved his words so faithfully. And we know exactly where the issues are. Nothing's hidden. Nothing's covered up. We have the original. And where there is question, your Bibles, just include that and mark that off and go, hey, we are being honest with you. So it's pretty amazing how God has preserved his word. No other ancient document even comes close to that kind of reliability. So verse five, let's continue. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm going down, another steps down before me. So what you have here is that there is this superstition, and that's what's inserted in there, is the, an explanation of this uh, this um, this superstition. There was this superstition that the waters would sometimes churn, and what that was was that an angel was coming down and stirring up the waters and whoever was the first person in got their disease healed. And so that was the superstition. Now, most likely this pool was just sitting on a natural spring and that occasionally that spring came on a little stronger and you would see the waters move. So there's nothing in the scriptures that indicate that this was some sort of magic pool, that there was any actual angel, but people had become superstitious. And uh, and so this was the case. So then Jesus comes to this place of superstition and he confronts, not confronts, but engages, initiates a conversation with this man. Uh, Among all the sick people, he goes and he finds this one man. Um, Jesus asks him a question. He says, do you want to be healed? And what's interesting is why the guy doesn't actually answer the question, does he? He gives an excuse of why he hasn't been healed yet. And it's, it's a woe is me, he's feeling, and I, I can understand that. He's been an invalid for 38 years, and he's all on his own. Nobody helps him into the pool. He has been coming in second long, again and again, and he's put all his hope in this superstition, and even he can't live up to the superstition. And he has become so enamored in his condition, and so blinded by this superstition, that he actually has Jesus standing before him, asking him if he wants to be healed, and he just has complaints. He can't even see who's in front of him. And so Jesus, in his compassion, asks, uh, tells him to get up and to be healed. And he does. The man doesn't ask for it. Jesus is just kind in extending forgiveness to an undeserving man who needs help. A man who's making excuses, a man who doesn't even see him clearly. God continues, or Jesus gives him grace. What's interesting is he doesn't like help the man into the pool. Jesus is not affirming the superstition. He is just showing his authority over the superstition and showing that it is he and he alone that can give this kind of healing. So I just would like to pause for a second. Is there anything in your life and experience that looms so large that it's hard for you to see or hear Jesus? Like this man, is there some event that's happened in your life or some experience That the offer of Jesus... It's hard to see or hear Jesus. The great thing is... Is that Jesus still has compassion... On this man... Even though... He doesn't really understand... Who's in front of him. We also see that Jesus' authority... Over sickness... Um, I don't know that he's necessarily sick... But it makes all the S words... Line up... So we'll go with sickness here... This man's paralysis... So Jesus said to him... Get up... Take your bed... And walk... And at once... The man was healed... And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews and this this would be the leaders of the Jews, said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But the man the but he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place, so Jesus kind of backs into the crowd, and the man, in his in his joy, I assume, of being healed, totally forgets Jesus. Just off he goes, and Jesus, and so this man um, takes his healing and goes, um, and doesn't really take uh, much stock in who has actually healed him. <clears throat> and the man gets in trouble, and you read we, we read earlier from Exodus thirty-one that uh, breaking the Sabbath is a big deal. Um, Jeremiah 17 also says take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it into the gates of Jerusalem do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers so they do have a good intuition in that they want to please God they want to follow his commands but you notice what happened is that they are more concerned about the laws about the Sabbath than they are about a man who, who was healed. This man was lame for 38 years. And all of a sudden he's healed. And the first thing they want to do is nitpick the rules. The Sabbath, um, or um, the, the Pharisees actually had 39 different kinds of work that are prohibited on the Sabbath. So in their zeal to try to protect God's law, they added extra laws try to, you know, like if, if God had put a fence around this, they wanted to put a couple more fences to make sure we never even got close. And Jesus just had no interest in that. He had no interest in man-made rules. So they come up with 39 kinds of work. And the 39th kind was bearing a burden on the Sabbath, which actually has some scriptural merit. The man, the man is carrying his burden on the authority of the one who healed him. The man doesn't even know Jesus' name. But I want you to notice a few things about the healing. First of all, it's not a fake healing. The man has been has been lame for 38 years. So this was not something that he could have just arranged with the man like hey you act lame for a week or two and I'll show up and I'll do this thing and then you'll make a big show. So it was not a fake healing. The man had been lame for 38 years. That's what John's trying to emphasize here. This man has been lame longer than Jesus has been on the earth. So he is making it clear to all who read this that this is not a trick. This was not staged. This was a real healing. Not only that, it's not a faith healing. There's no indication that this man exercises any faith in the story at all. God, Jesus, in his kindness, just extends mercy. The man gives no indication of faith. So it's not a faith healing. So there's a lot kind of circling around the world about faith healing, right? If you just had enough faith, then you would would have that healing. And the reason you haven't been healed yet is because you haven't had enough faith. Well, this passage goes way against this because a man with zero faith was healed because of the sovereign will of Jesus. It's a free healing. The man didn't ask Jesus. The man didn't climb into the pool. The man didn't pay any price at all. There was no send in your money and we'll send you this healing cloth as we see on TV sometimes. It's a free healing. It was just freely the grace of Jesus to this man who was sick, who was lame. And it was a full of healing It wasn't gradual, but instantaneous. It wasn't like a physical therapy where he kind of slowly regained his motion. It was instantaneous. It wasn't gradual. And so this was a true healing, not a fake healing, not a faith healing. It was a free healing and a full healing. So let's not get sucked into those versions, if I could even call it that, of Christianity that emphasize if you just have enough faith. Or any other superstitious additions to Jesus. Let's not add anything to the gospel. Jesus doesn't promise healing in every single case. And it's not dependent on our faith. It's dependent on his sovereignty. And his good pleasure. And he works all things for good. Verses 14 and 15. We see that Jesus has authority over sin. So afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. So again, like... The man's not searching for Jesus at the beginning. He goes to the pool, heals him physically. The man moves on, doesn't even think of Jesus. Jesus goes and finds him again. Jesus pursues the man again. And he finds him and he says, see, you are well. He's saying, remember, you've been cured. You just received a tremendous grace, a miraculous grace. And then he uses that to turn it, to get the man to think about something deeper and better. Because Jesus didn't come to just heal bodies. He came to save the lost. He says, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Being lame for 38 years is pretty bad. But there is something way worse. And that is to be clinging to your sin so much that you're facing the wrath of God. Some have, some have thought that maybe there was... The reason he said this is that he had sinned in some sort of way to get himself paralyzed. I think Jesus is not talking about, hey, if you, uh, if you don't get your act together, you're going to be even more paralyzed. I don't think he's talking about that. I think he's talking about the spiritual. Unless you repent of your sin, like you have received a grace from God. But there's even even greater grace that comes to being reconciled to God through repentance and faith. And there's something even worse that you can be delivered from. Look what the man does in verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So he totally blows off what Jesus has just said about his sin. And he's like, I want to clear my name before the Jewish leaders. I want to turn in the guy that made me break the Sabbath. Right. So he's more interested in being reconciled to the Jewish leaders than he is to being reconciled to God. But Jesus here shows that he has power over sin. And this is interesting. John Piper says this. He says, Christians care about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. Christians care about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. That's what we see in Jesus here. He cared about the man's infirmity and he healed him. But even more so, he's concerned about the man's sinful state before a holy God. And he offers him life. And the man is more concerned about his status with the religious leaders than he is. Being reconciled to God through repentance and faith. We also see in verses 16 through 18. Jesus authority over the Sabbath. So here we have it. Here we have. Um, um, this is where we begin to turn the corner. A little bit. But Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. This was why. The Jews were persecuting Jesus. So John enters his com- uh, uh, Puts in his commentary here. This was why Jesus. They were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And here's Jesus' response to charge number one. My father is working until now and I am working. This is why. So charge number two. Two, this is wise. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So things just went nuclear quick here. Like they just went from there now. The plot to kill Jesus is now starting in chapter five. It's starting off pretty early here. They're now seeking not just to persecute him for being a Sabbath breaker, but kill him because he was uh, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So there's some out there that say that Jesus never claimed to be God, but the people who were around him were very clear and wanted him dead because he claimed to be God. Two charges against Jesus, working on the Sabbath, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. One is deserving of persecution. The other is deserving of death. And here we are, the homicidal plotting against Jesus for compassion on the Sabbath. Jesus extends compassion on the Sabbath, and it's going to get him killed. Jesus' defense begins in 17. So go back to that for just a moment, and we'll turn the corner then to how Jesus defends his own divine authority. He begins his defense in 17, and then 19 through 30, he uh, unpacks it. So his defense is essentially essentially this. His his defense is not that the the Sabbath should be followed. He's just saying the Sabbath doesn't apply to him. (laughs) It's a very audacious defense. He says the Father works on the Sabbath, so I work on the Sabbath. Is God a lawbreaker? This was actually debated at that time. So Jesus is entering into a debate. And Philo, a Greek philosopher who was debating this, actually concluded that the Father is not a Sabbath breaker because he has to uphold the earth. Like, who keeps gravity going? Who keeps the hearts beating? God does. But he doesn't do that in uh, in breaking his own law. He's above the law. He's the lawmaker. He's the law. uh, He's the one who keeps those things going. And Jesus' defense is... Because God's not a lawbreaker by working on the Sabbath, I'm not a lawbreaker working on the Sabbath because the Father and I are one. Now, if he's, if he's wrong, he deserves to be put to death according to Jewish law. If he's right, he should be bowed down both before him and worshipped because he's God in the flesh. So they knew exactly what he was saying, and his defense is just doubling down. I am in one with the Father. So now let's look at verses 19-30 through 30, Jesus defends his divine authority Okay, so this gets a little confusing uh, Because the way that he structures his argument here Kind of loops around a little bit So let me just walk you through this And then we'll uh, look at the text So Jesus defends his divine authority That's 19-30 through 30. He's going to give his defense Like a defense attorney at trial Two charges have been brought against him He's breaking the Sabbath He's claiming to be equal with God And he's going, both are He's like, I am equal with God And here's why And here's his defense I am unified with the Father in work and will, verses 19 and 20, and then that's his closing statement in verse 30. Okay, So that's the book ends. He is one with the Father, therefore he has the Father's authority and privileges. Okay? Now, this unity means that they are unified in the giving of life and rendering of judgment in 21 through 23. God and Jesus, the Father and the Son, are united in how they give life, and render judgment. Okay? Then he moves on and talks about, I'm talking about spiritual life and just judgment. And then he explains it in verses 26 and 27. But before he explains it, he says also future resurrection and judgment, and then he explains it in 2029. You following? <laughs> Alright, so this is his case. I and the Father are one. We are united in will and work. And we together. Share the authority to give spiritual and resurrection life And render present and eternal judgment Okay, So these Jewish leaders are rendering judgment on Jesus And trying to decide whether or not they should take his life And Jesus is like you have this exactly backwards I am the one who is going to render judgment on you And determine whether you have life So this is the two, this is this is the lighthouse and the battleship. Right? You must bow to us, Jesus, and just like you must bow to me, the authority of Jesus. Okay? I and the Father are one. We are united in work and will, in the giving of life, presently, spiritually, and rendering of judgment presently, spiritually, and eternally in resurrection. Okay, so let's walk through this, okay? We'll go through this, hopefully, rather quickly. So this is his defense against the charges. So, Jesus, there's three truly, truly statements in this book, or in this passage. Whenever Jesus says, truly, truly, he means, listen up. I'm about to say the most important words you've ever heard in your life. So anytime he says, truly, truly, he's not saying other things were falsely, falsely. He's just saying, no, listen up. I am about to tell you what I'm all about. And these are the most important words you've ever heard in your life. So Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. marvel." So the point being, I and the Father are united in our will and our work. I am one with God. And then he he concludes his whole statement in verse 30. I can do nothing of my own accord as I hear judge and my judgment. I judge and my judgment is just because I seek my own will, not the will of him who sent me. OK, following there. The reason that I have the authority is because I am united with the father in work and will. OK, um, go down to verse 21. We'll just continue to build this out. He then goes, Okay, in what way do I have unity in work and will with the Father in the, giving in, life, in the giving of life and the rendering of judgment generally? For, verse, verse 21 For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to all whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given judgment, all judgment, to the Son, that all may honor the Son. Just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son. Does not honor the father who sent him. Okay. Unity with the father. In will and work. Particularly in the giving and rendering. Giving of life and rendering of judgment. They are together on this. So just like Jesus with his earthly father Joseph. They were together in the building of tables. And the the carpentry work that he had to do. I and my father share in the family business. We work together. So also he's saying. I do my heavenly father's work. And what is the work of the father? Fundamentally, if you go back to Genesis 1 through 3, fundamentally, the work of the father is to give life. Genesis 1 and 2 at the beginning, right? Made Adam and Eve breathed life into them. And then in Genesis 3, rendered judgment on them. Right? So the father from the very beginning gives life and renders judgment. And Jesus says, yes, I do that. Colossians actually says that it's Jesus in Genesis 1 through 3. That is at work there. The Father has delegated all life giving and judgment to the Son. So that the Son would be equally honored with the Father. So you cannot divide Jesus from the Father. Which is what the Pharisees are doing. He's claiming to be God. We've got to put him to death. You can't put Jesus to death and honor the Father. Okay? I know this is getting technical. But it's where Jesus takes us here. Therefore to dishonor the Son is to dishonor the Father. So what that means is that it is insanity to call Jesus merely a great prophet or a good moral teacher. It is dishonoring to the father to have any other view of Jesus than him being entirely and totally divine and one with the father. So that means our Mormon friends, our Jehovah's Witness friends, our Muslim friends, our Buddhist friends, our agnostic friends, our atheist friends, Hinduism is all... Holding to a lower view of Jesus that dishonors the Father and brings them under His judgment. That's what's at stake here. So, he then gets specific in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Okay? So, present spiritual life and death judgment. The words there, has eternal life, has passed from life to death. Means that the moment that one has believed the words of Jesus, they are at that moment saved. Eternal life doesn't begin when you die, it begins the moment you believe. Jesus is saying that there is a judgment being rendered right now by me. I have the authority to give spiritual life to all who believe, and their judgment is passed. The judgment against your sin, if you're a believer in Jesus, happened in 33 AD. Happened long before you were even born. Isn't that amazing? So your judgment day is already gone. So you have no fear of death because there is no judgment day left for you. The judgment has been rendered in that ultimate sense. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in me has eternal life right now. He does not come into judgment, but has right now passed from death to life. And the word whoever means that it's not just for Jews. It's not just for the religious. It's for anyone. It's for five-year-olds and 105-year-olds. It's for rich and poor. It's for people in prison, and it's for people in high office. It's for everybody. If you embrace the gospel message, you are saved. You are spiritually alive now. Your judgment day is over. And then he explains in verse 26 and 27, so we'll skip over 25, because he, for some reason, he talks about present spiritual life and judgment Then he talks about future resurrection and judgment. And then goes back and explains the present spiritual life and judgment in verses 26 and 27. He says, For, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in in himself. Which means they're both eternally self-existent. They both are the definition of life. Jesus was not created. They both are the definition of life. They They have both eternally existed. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. And he says, for as the Father has given life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And as he has given him authority to execute just judgment, because he is the Son of Man. So this goes back to Daniel chapter 7. So um, several hundred years before Jesus came, there was a prophecy. And here was the prophecy. Listen to this. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Which is what Jesus is saying here. He's like, I am the fulfillment of Daniel chapter seven. So the use of that son of man. He is referencing this prophecy of Daniel chapter seven that these rulers would have known. These Jewish leaders would have known. He says, says this. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom all that all people's nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. So these people that are trying to kill him, he's saying, I'm the prophesied one who is Lord and God over all. You may want to rethink your position. I don't yield to you, you yield to me. Jesus is uniquely called, qualified as the eternal self-existent one to give spiritual life and render judgment. And then verse 25, we're almost there, hang in there with me. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, An hour is coming. So he's talking about, he talked about before, present spiritual life. Now he's talking about future resurrection life and judgment. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So so there is coming a day when every dead human being that has ever been on the planet will be raised to life before him. And he's like, I'm going to do that. And then he explains it in verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Not just believers, but unbelievers. Everybody. Everybody gets resurrected at the end. Every spirit is reunited with their physical body, and there is a physicalness. And Jesus is going to raise every human being that's ever lived to life. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice. At the voice of Jesus he will resurrect all of them. Whether they believed in him or not. And they'll come out. Those who have done good to resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Some to a literal physical new heavens and a new earth. Some to a literal physical hell. A literal physical experience. Because both... The believer and the unbeliever will be resurrected. Everybody will have to obey Jesus at that point. At the end, when he says, Rise, all will rise. It also tells us elsewhere in Scripture that every knee will bow. But you want to bow on this side of death, not that side. You're going to bow either way, but you bow to him now, and you receive eternal life. You refuse to bow now, and you'll bow later, but it'll be for judgment. This is... Do you see the authority of Jesus just man, he is just pinning them to the wall here every person who has died will live again in their own bodies our eternal destinies will be tangible physical experiences our bodies do matter so the bottom line is he says to these guys you are in no position to render judgment on me and whether I should live or die. He turns around to them and he says I in fact am in the divine position because of my union with the father to render judgment on you and determine whether you live or die and that's what he would say to every single one of us it is not for us to decide whether or not Jesus is Lord he is Lord But it is he who determines whether we will live or die. It is his judgment of us that matters. So bottom line, this is where we'll conclude. Jesus has complete authority over all of your life. Whether you recognize it or not, he is the authority over all of your life. That's his claim. Jesus will not submit to your authority. He's not your butler. He's not, he will not submit to your authority. No matter how reasonable you think your position is. No matter how much you think he ought to do what you ought to do. You bow to him. He does not bow to you. Jesus will be the one who renders final judgment on your life, not vice versa. Your judgment of Jesus doesn't change him at all. His judgment of you means everything. Jesus has the authority of spiritual life now and resurrection life later. So like the ships in the opening story, your life is on a collision course with Jesus. In this life and ultimately in the next. And he is the lighthouse. He is the immovable one. He is the one who will win. And so we need to yield to him. And the good news is is that to all To all who will bow the knee to Jesus. Who will forsake their sin and their own self-perceived authority. Will bow their knees before Jesus. Trust in what he has done. His perfect life. His death on the cross for us. His resurrection. His promise to return. All who believe in that have eternal life now. Will experience resurrection life later. And will be brought into eternal life with him will bow either way. I encourage you to bow today. Bow before him today. Will you look to justify and protect yourself like the lame man? Will you look to dismiss what you've heard and attack the claims of Jesus in your heart? Or will you yield to him? Remember Jesus' words to the lame man. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Repentance and faith in the word, the work, and the person of Jesus brings us into right relationship with so let's bow. God, we, uh, we thank you for this. This is a complicated passage that you have laid before us. And yet, Lord, it's clear. You are Lord. You have demonstrated it by the healing of the man. And we see it in our lives if we're looking. And your words bring us to our knees. They humble us. We can't make Jesus into our image. We can't contort and twist Christianity to fit our preferences. We either accept the offer, the free gift of grace that you give us, or we decline it. Either way, you are Lord. So Lord, I pray that every person in here would at this moment be in awe of Jesus, would turn from their sins and yield themselves to Jesus and receive the grace and the life that he offers. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.